This Week in Startups is brought to you by LinkedIn. You need LinkedIn jobs to find the right people for your business. Post a job today at linkedin.com slash twist and get $50 off your first job post. Silicon Valley Bank. Founding a startup isn't all hoodies and hoverboards. To make it, you need a bank that offers insights, expert advice, and custom solutions. Visit svb.com forward slash next to move your bold ideas forward faster. Silicon Valley Bank. Ideas bank here. And Gainsight PX, the all-in-one solution for product managers. You worked hard on your product. Make sure your users actually use it with Gainsight PX's adoption driving tools and powerful analytics. Try Gainsight PX for free today at gainsight.com slash twist. Upcoming launch events. Apply for our next Founder University September 9th and 10th in San Francisco at founder.university. And get your free Founder Pass for Launch Scale in San Francisco October 7th and 8th at launchscale.net slash tickets. We always like to talk about money and raising money. It's the number one question we get from people. Um, Money is a tool. It's a way to accomplish things. But it's getting harder and harder and harder to close money before you build your product and have traction. This is a great paradox, isn't it? Because we all think raising money is so you can build the product. Au contraire, mon frere, no more. Too easy for people to build their products off sweat equity and friends and family. So we're all in a giant competition now to get traction and to get proof points and then raise money. The world has changed. You can deny it. You can be oblivious. uh, Or you can embrace this new world and learn the new techniques to impress investors. And we have some impressive investors here. Please welcome Paul Judge, Elizabeth Yin, and Sean Abrahamson. Big round of applause. Hey, Paul, have you been to Sydney or first time? I've been here a few times. I love it every time. Great. Yes. Elizabeth, you've been here a bunch of times. John, have you been here before? This is uh, third. Third time. Um, Let me start out by just asking you um, when the first time you were here, and then what's your observation of the startup community here as candidly as you can? I mean, there's a couple of them in the room, but... Let's just pretend they're here. As candidly as you can, where is this community compared to our community in the States and specifically Silicon Valley? If you were to maybe even pin a year um, and just give me your thoughts on it, Sean. Well, that's a fun way to open. Um, you know, I think that, that the gap um, is probably more on the investor side. So this is this is not a play because I think there's more founders in the room. I think that um, there is so much information. So if you look at, you think about someone like Rahul who presented yesterday morning, he has a Medium post. You can go out and talk to founders who've already read that in Sydney, the same way that there are folks in the Bay Area who've seen the same thing. Um, so I just feel like people are speaking the same language, they understand the goals. So I just don't see that much of a gap. I think where there is a, a gap is probably still, um, it's very difficult to compete with multiple, multiple decades of investor experience in the Bay Area. Elizabeth, what are your thoughts? You, and you've traveled the world and done investments all over the world. So what are your thoughts now? Yeah, so previously I used to work at 500 Startups where I ran their accelerator program and we invested in a lot of international companies, including many Australian companies. And I think one of my biggest observations actually is there is a bit of a hustle gap as a vast generalization. And I think one of the challenges that so many of my companies, not just from Australia, but so many of my international companies in general faced was they may have been a big fish in their pond at home. And when you are the big fish in your pond at home, it's easy, I don't want to call it to get complacent, but you don't really know what it means to play on the global sphere. And then you come to San Francisco, even for just one month. And if you haven't done it, I and I firmly believe that you can build a company anywhere, but I would encourage everybody to spend even one month in San Francisco and you just eyes wide open. It is a competitive, like dog eat dogs world out there. And that is really where people understand what it means to be hungry, aggressive, and where you kind of slot in in terms of how you can compete. And some people don't want to be a venture back startup, and that's perfectly fine. But I think that eye opening experience will give you a sense of 
do you want that? Do you want to be that unicorn? Um, and I don't think everybody needs to be at all, but I think it's a very different lens than, say, staying here. Paul, you pioneered building centers of excellence outside of the Valley. Um, your uh, incubator and investments occur in Atlanta, uh, across the street from um, Georgia Tech, yeah. which has thousands of developers. So that's a that's a, a real resource. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the community here? And what did you struggle with yourself over the last decade? Because we've been working together now for a long time. It's been a while. It's been about a decade. Uh, what what have what did you struggle with in Atlanta? Yeah. How did you overcome it? And then do you see any parallels here? Down under. Yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, you know, over the years when, when I was coming here to Sydney, it was as a, as a cybersecurity entrepreneur. Uh, as we did different companies over the years, we've had customers here. And I noticed the large enterprises here were always forward thinking. They were always building the kind of most forward thinking architectures. And one of the advantages we have in Atlanta is not only do we have the university, but we have these large corporations and we get to go to them as early customers. And that quick feedback loop helps us figure out as a startup if we're on the right track or not. Uh, and if not, it helps us go to those large companies and say, well, what problems do you have that I can solve for you? And so I encourage entrepreneurs to go to these large companies because they have real problems. And if you can go figure out those real problems, you can make real startups. And we've gotten better at that over the years in Atlanta of going door to door and finding problems to go solve. And so I'm encouraged about the opportunity to do that here. And in, in a way, that is a function of necessity, too, because in San Francisco, let's face it, you've got some very deep pockets who have had some very outlier success who are more than willing to say, yeah, take a year or two. Who cares about revenue? Yep. Maybe you don't have that is explicit um, agreement with investors right. in Atlanta or here. And uh, has that changed? Do you finally investors in Atlanta are taking a more Silicon Valley approach or are they still saying, hey, let, let's get some revenue on the board. Let's put some numbers up so that, you know, we have a chance of surviving until such time that we thrive. I think in, in Atlanta, there's, there's certainly a skew towards uh, B2B problems and B2B startups, uh, where even if the, the revenue's not there, we know someone at a company that we can go call and say, hey, if we built this, would you buy it? How much would you pay? Would your friends buy it? Okay, we're on to something, let's go. Uh, and so, yeah, the, the appetite for investors in Atlanta does skew more towards those B2B type companies versus B2C where, as you said, larger checkbooks can be more patient, wait for growth, figure out if monetization exists or not. Uh, and so the community in Atlanta has shifted towards more B2B startups and that's working for us. And so we aren't able to replicate everything that works in Silicon Valley. You all may have heard my little introduction there that in the United States, investors like us are, I think, in shock at the traction level of seed stage startups today. We are having our companies that we've invested in, or we're meeting companies to potentially invest in, that will have 10, 25, 50, or $100,000 a month in revenue who cannot get a venture capitalist to give them a Series A. And just 10 years ago, Venture capitalists were very regularly giving $3 million. Um, what's the most capital efficient company you've ever seen in your portfolio? And how do you think this dynamic is going to play out? And what are the opportunities over the coming years? Elizabeth, I see you're nodding along like this is incredible. I, I agree with you. I, I don't think it is permanent, though. I think we're going through a shift. So I think the shift is there are a lot of uh, big funds that have gotten bigger. So they went from a $100 million fund, they're now a billion dollar fund. And there are seed stage funds that have raised hundreds of millions of dollars and they used to write checks at the idea stage. You can no longer do that if you're running like a $500 million fund, right? Why? Explain Why? to people who might not understand this because yep. a, a person who's not in the industry or new to the industry would say, well, wait, you have five times as much money, shouldn't you be able to take more chances and give bigger checks to even more crazy ideas. Yeah, certainly. So to spell it out, you know, if you have a five, let's just call it a $500 million fund, that means that, you know, your time is still limited. You may have more money, but you, you can only 
quote, work with a certain number of companies. Like if you sit on a board, you cannot be on 100 boards. And so as a result, you have to deploy more money into each of your companies. And if you're doing that, you can't, let's just say, deploy $5 million in an idea stage company. That's a lot of risk. And so previously, when you may have been able to play at that very risky stage with smaller amounts of money, when you're trying to deploy a $5 million check, that's a lot harder. So you have to wait until a lot more is de-risked, which often means more traction and other things about the team and whatever else. Things basically have to look perfect. And so you are no longer an early stage investor. So what we're seeing is all these big funds who have previously had success and they've shown their success now are able to raise more money from their funders because of that success. But it actually means that what led them to that success, they can no longer do that. And so they are now investing at a later stage. And we're kind of seeing everybody shift uh, to be a little bit more conservative to the next stage. And I think what we have right now is a, a bit of a gap at the earliest stages. Like who will write a check at what is now called pre-seed? It's all a strange nomenclature thing. But who will write it, that early check, that very first institutional check? Maybe you have some semblance of a product. You don't have loads of traction like we're talking about, 100K per month. And I think that void is starting to be filled. Uh, certainly, you know, Charles Hudson was here. We do that. But it's still a, a bit of a void. And I think that void will be filled. Hiring is not as simple as just putting an ad in the paper and just dumping it on some job board. Nope. That's a waste of time. You are busy growing your business. You need to stay focused, but you need to reach the right candidates at the right time. That's where LinkedIn comes in. We love LinkedIn. Over 600 million members visit LinkedIn to make connections, learn, and grow as professionals and discover new job opportunities. LinkedIn members add 15 new skills to their profiles and apply to 35 job posts every two seconds. I mean, it is active over there. You know that. You get the alerts. You see your friends changing jobs. You get updates on your home screen. Great news. Well, that's how LinkedIn gets your job posts in front of the right people with the right hard and soft skills to meet your role requirements. They're going to get you those people when they're on there updating their skills and they're going to show them really cool jobs. Here is CMO Presh creating a job post on LinkedIn in minutes. Some pre-screening questions to identify the preferred candidates, selecting a custom budget and seeing how many people will be looking at the job postings. Then LinkedIn auto-populates candidates they think might be a good fit for you, right? So they're helping you thread the needle there. So get $50 off your first job posting right now. Go to linkedin.com slash twist, linkedin.com slash T-W-I-S-T to get a fitty. 5-0 from J-Cal, your boy. Terms and conditions do apply. But get that 50 right now, linkedin.com slash twist. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. Sean, when you think about this new dynamic, how has it changed your behavior, if at all, as an investor? Do you find yourself inundated with so many companies with traction that you don't get to the companies that are in the idea prototype phase? And are you concerned about that or not in terms of missing opportunities? Yeah, so I think, yeah, Elizabeth, like, yeah, perfectly explained what we see, which is the, the byproduct of success as a fund is to be encouraged to raise more money, which means you have to invest more money which means you have to wait for traction. And so we saw that probably, I would say three years ago, it, it, it started to feel like that was happening. There were some very successful seed stage firms that started at 50 and were going to 100 million. And if you run the math on the allocation model, it's like, okay, great. So we actually did something quite strange. We teamed up with a, a global brand, BMW, and um, they just happened to have similar investment interests and we started an accelerator. Um, and it sort of served two purposes. One was we, because of our thesis, um, we would meet companies that had traction, right? So they could get to, let's say, 75K selling into a local government. And we would be like, yeah, that's just not the right kind of traction. Like even with that, you're going to struggle to get meetings. We would much rather meet you before you make that decision and see if you could do B2B instead. Um, so I think it's worked pretty well at the time. Um, like RLPs were, you know, why are you doing this? And we try to explain uh, what we thought was happening in allocation models. Um, so I, I think it's been okay. We just spend more and more time looking at pre-seed. I think that's probably what everyone here has in common. Let's talk about bootstrapping strategies, Paul. Uh, you're an entrepreneur. 
um, and a great one at that, who has had great success, but you've also had your share of failures and getting your ass kicked like me. Uh, it's not easy. Um, bootstrapping as a skill means you're able to accomplish more with less and not dilute your cap table, keep more of the equity yourself. I know that a lot of us have been thinking about this and advising our companies of how to preserve that precious capital in a time when founders, a large portion of which seem to be having um, a disproportionate focus on fundraising and learning that skill, as opposed to the skill of being frugal and efficient. As a founder uh, of great success and an investor of great success, what are the bootstrapping strategies that you've deployed, seen, uh, and recommend? So, so many. And, and at Atlanta, there's been kind of this natural evolution because of the lack of uh, you know, just excess funding sources that uh, the smarter entrepreneurs have had to figure out how to get farther along with less. And so you pretty quickly, that energy that you would spend calling on investors, you start to spend it calling on customers. And it's amazing what happens when you do that. You actually start to get revenue. And dollars come in that uh, actually kind of push the company forward versus kind of being able to, to run out, right? There's actually recurring dollars versus one-time dollars. And explaining that to entrepreneurs is sometimes difficult uh, because those one-time dollars tend to come with a, a press release and a, a picture and a paper. And those recurring dollars don't necessarily come with like the same accolades. Like even though they're better, they're more valuable. And getting entrepreneurs to understand that these recurring dollars are just so much better uh, has been key. And the ones that can zoom in and focus on that, like in Atlanta, uh, you know, there's a company called Mailchimp, bootstrapped. Uh, there's a company called Calendly, bootstrapped. And it was because there wasn't as many people they could go down the street and, and raise that money for. Now, what that has meant for an investor is it's sometimes harder to get into these companies because they don't need... We both tried. Yes, every time I see Ben. And we've both <laughs> failed. Yes. And so this is an interesting moment for us. Yes. The focus that they had that, was, that came out of constraint has led them to be more and more attractive to investors and given them the ability to say no to investors. Mm -hmm. So I, what I think is very important about what you said is a reoccurring revenue dollar is worth more than an investment dollar. Yes. How much more? A dollar that's reoccurring in your mind versus an investment dollar. How would you think about that? What would you all say? I would just, I would call it five times more. Uh, we just think about churn and lifetime value of that customer. Yeah. Uh, so easily, easily three times more, but I would argue five times more. Yeah. And with a product that people love, yeah. that they stick with for two years or three years, yeah. like superhuman, that might be a lifetime. Exactly. What is a superhuman or a Slack or a Canva dollar worth? Oh my Lord, that might be 300 to one. Yes. Yeah. You have a great net revenue retention. Yeah. It could be, yeah, exactly. Crazy. Uh, bootstrapping strategies. And one more thing, yeah. uh, what also isn't baked into the number is you have faster learnings because you have customers. Ah. And so there is an increase in your speed or ability. And that I don't know how to quantify, but there's something, there's some value there as well. If you were to say the average investor, not these ones on the stage, but because these are the exceptional, that's why they're here. But the average investors, the knowledge they would give to a founder, the average investor in Silicon Valley versus the average customer which knowledge and, and compare the value of those knowledge on a percentage basis or a, a, a multiple basis? Oh, yeah. Most, most investors are useless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As far as knowledge goes, I mean, obviously, their money. <laughs> we didn't rehearse that, right? <laughs> just to be clear. But I mean, other bootstrapping, techno uh, bootstrapping techniques uh, love pre-sales. Or I think what is pretty similar to pre-sales is also, you know, for B2B companies, instead of doing monthly you know, charge up front for the annual. Maybe you give your customer a bit of a discount, but then you get all your cash up front. So thinking about it in terms of the cash flows as well. Like when do you get the cash? And the cash up front is more valuable today than across the next few months. Yeah, when you think about that, you typically see it phrased as um, $9 a month billed annually. Yep. And this device has been transformative 
for uh, the next company, you'll see Fitbod, which is one of our, it is absolutely the highest performing revenue ramp of any accelerator company out of the hundred. Um, and yeah, it, it gives you cash flow. You're getting 11, if it's billed yearly, you're getting 11 months in advance. That is non-dilutive money from customers that has been given to you for a service that has not yet been delivered. And if you uh, look at um, Kickstarter, the promise of Kickstarter was similar, but it was for wacky products or weird, you know, moonshot products typically. But Elon Musk said, hey, if you want this, uh, the first thousand customers give us 100% deposit. After that, give us 1% or 2% deposit. And boy, has that helped him with cash flow and with people being wedded to the brand and locked in. And it helps you also de-risk the whether people want it, right? If they're willing to give you money up front and you haven't delivered, they really want it. This would be the highest test mm -hmm. of all. Uh, Sean, bootstrapping techniques for the people in the audience who are obsessing about their inability to clear market. The entire event, I would say, two out of three transaction uh, uh, discussions here are, um, I can't clear market, I can't clear market. What do you say to people who can't clear market and then bootstrapping techniques as well? So I, I think um, there's an exercise that we started to do sort of informally, but it's now become part of what we do in the first month, is we build a cash flow model, um, which seems kind of silly for folks. It's like, how do you run a business without cash flow? But, you know, investors stopped asking for financial models because it was like, well, these are fake projections. But the projections weren't the interesting part. The cash flow and understanding, you know, if you wanted to price the value of a customer, just put the units per month, month over month, even if you're not scaling as fast as you want. And it becomes very clear that your million dollar slug that appears miraculously after 100 meetings and five ghosts, I forgot Chris's statistics, but like that doesn't look as interesting anymore when you lay that out against your cash flow from customers. So, um, I think a lot of founders just have never looked at their business that way. And then when you see it, you're like, wow, that's kind of obvious. Um, I think the, the harder question is, you know, what are you going to allow yourself to spend each month? Um, I think that's where we go back and forth. And you have some really tough conversations. Like I've had founders where we're having the second mortgage discussion. And, and then it's a highly personal, can you go back to your significant other? Can you go back to your partner and say, are we up for this, right? Are we going to dip into savings? How far are we going to go? Um, and unfortunately, that's reality. Maxing out credit cards is reality. But I think what comes out of that is you decide, is this something you really want to do, right? Like you may not want to build a startup. So I think the, the bootstrapping to some extent, we love doing the cash flow exercise just because it's, it's very real, even if it's, it's not you know, an actual budget or performer but it gives you a sense of how to value customers over investors. And it relegates investors to, you know, it's sort of like you get up front, if you're nervous speaking in front of people, it's like, imagine everyone in their underwear and it's a lot easier. And this is the moment for investors where they're in their underwear. It's like, this is just another source of cash. Customers are actually more interesting. So we try to emphasize that and... Correct, thank you. <laughs> If you work in the tech world, you know it's not about the foosball tables and ping pong and free lunches and hoodies. There are many challenges in the startup journey and no one understands them quite like Silicon Valley Bank. For example, you have a great idea for a startup but you don't know the way to launch. Silicon Valley Bank has helped thousands of startups and is always eager to share their insights. If you feel like your company is growing at quantum speed, well, Talk to Silicon Valley Bank because they strive to support you at your pace to be quick, nimble, and always looking ahead to the future. With Silicon Valley Bank, you're not just getting a bank, you're getting banking and financial services from a partner that's committed to seeing you through the ups and downs along with insights, expert advice, and scalable solutions that founders need to move their bold ideas forward and faster. So here is your call to action. If you're a founder, potential founder, or just someone with an idea and a whole lot of ambition, Silicon Valley has solutions that will help you. And they're gonna support you again from seed stage right up to the big stage. So visit svb.com forward slash next to learn more.
svb.com, nice short domain name, forward slash next, N-E-X-T, Silicon Valley Bank. Ideas Bank here. Let's get back to this amazing episode. Two techniques that I did in my own career, I'll just like to share, because I think they're super important. People know I did Silicon Valley Reporter Magazine, but they don't know that I did one called Cyber Surfer. Although somebody uploaded two full embarrassing episodes, <laughs> issues to uh, the Internet Archive, where it's me reviewing CD-ROMs with Brian Alvey and pretty hilarious. Um, but we refused to quit our high-paying IT jobs. And Brian and I would get on the train back to Brooklyn. Uh, we'd meet uh, on the train and we'd start working on this zine that we started, Cyber Surfer, uh, in 1993 and 94. And then we'd work overnight. Uh, and then we'd bring the zip disks, the side disks. I think they were called side disks at the time. Uh, we'd make a backup copy. It took like two hours to just load the magazine onto those disks to the publisher to print and go to work. And we were just too scared to lose that, um, you know, those those day jobs. And it the magazine ultimately failed. But when we started the second one, Silicon Alley Reporter, we then had learned all the lessons on our IT jobs. And I think the statute of limitations is up right now, but we both had tiny offices, him at Business Week, me at Sony. And there might have been times when we accidentally forgot we were at work and wrote some stories for the magazine with our doors closed. Um, and then the other thing, you know, I, I th so I think that's important. A lot of people are like, I, I need to get money to build my idea. No, you don't. Build it on the weekends and nights. And, and keep that revenue, and now the pressure's off, and you can do it in a more pure fashion. Um, and the second thing I'll encourage people to do is to, to really be fearless learners of new skills, but then when you do have resources, um, be radical delegators. And so the example of that was when the magazine started, we, we didn't have the ability to hire photographers. So I just went to B&H Photo, and I asked my guy, Shlomo, like, what's the best camera I can get? Because I don't know how to do it. And he just sat there, literally, his name was Shlomo. And he just said, Jason, here's how you do it. Da, da, da. And he got me the Carl Zeiss lens, and it was $400. And I would take all the pictures myself, and they were good enough. They were 80%. But then we had revenue and money. And what the great thing about learning every skill, from page maker to photography to editing and writing um, and sales and distribution was, when I hired people for those positions, I knew about 70% of their job. I didn't know the last 30%, they knew more, but at least I could speak the lingo and they respected me and they couldn't bullshit me. Mm -hmm. If you're gonna be a great founder, you should be able to get up to 70% in terms of knowledge of any skill in a week. And if you can't, you're too weak to be a founder. That should tell you something. If you can't learn photography 70%, coding, design 70%, what are you doing? You're not good enough, period. This is the Olympics, this is like the special forces. This is like the legit, you know, hard work you have to do. Um, tell me your average check size today. And when you're evaluating a company, do you make the decision? Do you make it as a group? And how do you come to decisions in 2019 going into 2020? Paul? Yes, certainly. I'm still just nodding at your, your point of learning every part of the business. So many people get that, that first round of funding and they're just ready to kind of kick their feet up and give directions, but they don't even understand what they're directing people to do. And it's one of the fastest ways to make that money disappear. Ah, right, because you're inefficient. Yeah. See, this is the other piece. And if you look at the great directors of movies, because you just said the word directing and it just triggered that in my mind, a lot of them came out of the editing room. A lot of them were writers. Right. A lot of them didn't have a writer, so they had to write their own screenplay. They didn't have a camera operator, so they had to do the camera. They didn't have an editor, so they had to go to the editing room. Yes. And then they became so good at it because they knew every job. Yes. And when they got a really good camera operator, they could sit there and talk about the lingo and not get snowed. Yes. And it can make a $500,000 round you know, feel like a $2 million round. If you can just spend more efficiently and the company just gets more progress, if the founder's smarter about the different parts of the business, and that's just, it makes such a difference. Like two co companies can raise the same amount of money, but one yes. person is just two hands off and they run Oof. out of gas, yeah. like faster than the other person. Uh, but yeah, to your question, uh, my average check is 50K to 100K. Uh, and uh, in terms of the decision process, uh, there's typically two of us that have access to the checkbook. We have two different specialties. Uh, and so the decisions tend to be largely independent. 
uh, but we bounce them off of each other. Uh, we do everything from cybersecurity to marketing automation to we were just talking about a, a company that does uh, building efficiency uh, that we co-invested in. What, 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 wait, wait, I'm not on that cap table. Building efficiency, this sounds yum, yum. We'll fix that. We'll fix it. Yeah, let's talk during the break. <laughs> you didn't save a slice for J-Cal? <laughs> J-Cal. Or Elizabeth? Right now. Elizabeth, let's do it. You know that Project X we're working on? We don't tell them about it until we get our cap table slice on this other one. Yum, yum. Uh, Elizabeth, consensus, bounce it off each other. How, how do you come to decisions, check size? Yeah. Uh, check size, always 25K as our first check. Sometimes we may follow on, most cases we won't. Um, but we move very quickly per our name, Hustle Fund is my fund. We make a decision within 48 hours of a conversation and um, uh, no, no consensus, entirely champion. Champion, not consensus. And why is that important? If you look at all the ideas have, that have gone on to be huge, they're all contentious. So many people missed out in the earliest stages. And I think the reality is you just don't know what's going to work. So if you're trying to get consensus around things, it, you're going to miss out on a lot of things. I think it's incredibly well stated. You know, if you look at Airbnb, 40 no's. Uber, when they were at the Open Angel Forum, I got Cyan and First Round to Invest, Mark Suster and many others mm -hmm. who've been very public about it didn't, 20 didn't. And it, you know, they knew. But when they talked to other people, the danger of taking a high risk decision to other people is they will explain to you, because this is how our fearful human minds work, the how dangerous and likely to fail it is. Mm -hmm. And now you've your champion nature, the, oh, this has got a one in 50 chance of winning, but it could pay back 5,000 X, let's do it, becomes, well, this is a 98% chance of failure. Why would anybody ever do that? But we're not jumping out of planes and saying 1% chance, 2% chance of the parachute opening. We're making investments. If the 25,000 goes away, what's the maximum you can lose, Elizabeth? Right. No, this is 25K. I, I've been trying to figure that out. Thank you. I'm not very good at math. <laughs> what's the maximum you can make? Uncapped. Correct. Uh, Sean, average check size, and how do you and Stonely make decisions, consensus, champion, or other? Uh, so currently 150K. Um, I think there's a few unusual things. We treat the first check as sort of part of the diligence process. So we actually believe that we're buying the time to hang out with the teams and get to know them. <coughs> so it's not an excuse for doing diligence. It's just that's it's hard for us to know enough um, so that's how we think about it. Um, the way that we make decisions, I don't trust myself um, to judge people. Like I just am not good at it. I love ideas and I can do engineering. I'm not so good at people. Um, so what we landed up doing, my favorite internet algorithm all, of all time is interestingness on, uh, from Flickr. And, and it's based on actually just lack of agreement, right? So if you look at people that don't know each other, that all like the same image, um, that was interestingness. And so um, we actually look for dissonance. We, we usually at Stony and I, often it's four or five people, depending on the subject matter. Um, and, and actually the most extreme, if someone laughs about an idea, we dig in immediately. Like that moves to the top of the list. Like that's our, our filter. And so usually the more you disagree, eventually someone's going to be like, that is so odd. I have to lull. Like <laughs> as soon as the lull happens, I'm like, good, drop everything. Let's go check out that thing. Um, so yeah, so I mean, that's just, uh, for me, it's self-awareness. I'm just, I get so carried away with the idea that I forget to talk to the team. <laughs> and so <laughs> that was my hack. Elizabeth, you had something to add there? No. no, no okay. <laughs> uh, for us, it's very clear, $100,000 US for the uh, accelerator. And the way we make that decision has changed over time. I used to have my team sort through stuff and then you know, they'd rank it and I'd make a decision. Now, the managing directors uh, and Sam, the president, we call them the Fantastic Four because there's four of them. Um, and uh, I'm Professor X because I'm losing my hair. Um, and also I have the ability to control people's minds. <laughs> Thanks, I made you all laugh. Um, again, uh, so what we do is we have a very interesting process we started the last year, which is I call it the four by four by four. There's four of them. And I asked them when we're doing the accelerator to give me their top four companies ranked in order, which is unnecessary, but frustrating and entertaining for me. 
because it gives me something to ask a question and say, hey, why is this three, not two? Why is this two, not one? It's just a great place to start a discussion. And then I ask them to do their top four reasons in ranked order of why they're going to do it. And then I have that for all time, a four by four by four. And then I no longer find I have to make many decisions. I just look at the four by four by four report and it's inevitably exactly what I want. And very rarely is there one that is not duplicated across the four by four by four report. And I think as investors and when you're doing this kind of stuff, it's very important to take notes about how you're making decisions um, and to track it. I, only wish I had the first five years of notes of how I made my investment decisions and looking back on it, you know, what I missed and you, you have to do it anecdotally, which then creates bias like recency bias or confirmation bias um, and removing that bias uh, and, and those human frailties and, and, you know, the mistakes in our thinking based on evolution uh, can really make you a much better investor. So from that, have you found a correlation uh, amongst who is your best picker and results? Oh, yes. The board? <laughs> <laughs> and the great part is they don't know. Uh, no, you know, it's, I, I also think that the sin of early stage investing is not taking risk and not taking flyers and not saying yes. And so what happens over time, I think if you get good at what we do, is that you get very comfortable with failure and mistakes. And every mistake we make, I just say, okay, what can we learn from it? What is that founder doing next? Um, and if we took the time to diligence that founder, we love them then, do we still love them now? And if that's the case, well, that, that's the information we want, is do we pick the right person and, and what are they doing next? Because that's the lens. Mm -hmm. Seven out of 10 fail, um, you know, what can you learn from those, uh, those failures? But boy, the world of investing is filled with the anti-portfolio yes. and how painful it is. So let's go there as we wrap up. Take a moment, think about your regrets, think about your mistakes, think about that money. It would be in your bank account right now. Think about the private jet, second home, uh, and the unlimited, uncapped wealth that you don't have right now because of that mistake. <laughs> Yesterday, I talked about Twitter being mine. Uh, but here's another one. Uh, hey, Jake Al, I invested in this company called Adam. Uh, they're making these like uh, little cars. And I say, yeah, I know all about that. The electric cars with like just a frame around it that you, you'll kill yourself. They're zipping up and down the 280 at 100 miles. I says, yeah. That's interesting. I don't, I'm not an angel investor. He's like, yeah, it's a dollar a share if you just want to put a little bit of money in. And I was like, you know, Elon, angel investing is stupid. I, I have to invest in my company. I'm like, it's too focused. Like, then the founder's going to be calling me and whatever. And he was investing in, test, in the precursor to Tesla at that time. And, you know, this is a, um, yeah, this is painful. <laughs> That's super fucking painful. Uh, and uh, what's yours? Come let's on, see. I just say it. Uh, let's if see. you're really Recent thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Recently, uh, there's a company called Flexport. Oh, my God. I was uh, sitting at a table on vacation with Ryan, the founder. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, and you were on a vacation with him? Yeah, we were together. This is a similar situation to me and uh, Elon and, and with Evan Williams and Twitter. We were friends. Yeah. But you were on vacation, yeah, unlimited I, time together. Here's the problem, too. Is I, I say, oh, yeah, I should do that. Send me the papers, yeah. Uh-huh. And just the speed of life and, oh, oops. And I think their latest public round was, what, $3 billion valuation? And it's an amazing company. He's foot on the gas. I love him as a person, as a founder. This was the first round, second round? Yeah, it was probably seed, yeah. So. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's a $10 million round or less. This question should come with a cocktail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? 300, 300x, 300, take out our calculator, somebody, 300, average check size, 100. Could somebody out there times uh, 100,000 by yeah, 300? Awesome. All right. What's 100,000 times? 100 times the three is 300, times 30 is 3 million. And then if you added another zero, that would be... $3 billion, wow. You, no, three, $30 million mistake. Fuck. <laughs> oh, God. 
Elizabeth. Let's do it. I think there are sort of two categories. So one is where I met with the founder and I passed, and the other is I really should have asked to be in. Like they were not actually pitching me. And and that category is actually a lot bigger. I should have asked Cat Lake for allocation in Stitch Fix. I should I should have You were friends. You yeah. knew her. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. They went public. We, <laughs> we we don't need to calculate what this what yeah, this But then it did go public and somebody right now could say Okay, Google, what's the valuation of Stitch Fix? Hey, Siri, what's the valuation of Stitch Fix? Nobody's got Siri. <laughs> Somebody just call it out, for God's sake. Let's make this painful for Elizabeth. Um, okay, what's the other category, the other one? So, and then the other category is uh, people who pitched, you know, actively yeah. looking for men. Sure, sure, even more um, painful. Uh, when I was at 500, we looked at Instacart. We passed because of valuation. Which was? Uh, at Ballpark. the time, it was sub 10. So if sub 10 for a YC company seems like a steal in yeah. retrospect, in right? Retrospect. But, but when you think about it, right, like valuation is a, is a big reason why people pass. Okay, so Stitch Fix was $3 billion, So it's just a $30 million. It's actually, you know what? You were putting 25K checks, and so it's, it's only a $7.5 million mistake. Yeah. You have, a, you have a partner. Would have been three point seven five. You pay a little tax, just you know, whatever, two million in cash, yeah. just yeah. sloshing around in that bank account. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you were friends. She would have done it for you. She probably would have said, "You know what? It's going so well. You should put in double." Um, <laughs> Sean, take us through it. Um, so I like. I I actually think I did both of you because I like missed the whole category. Um, so I met the Rappy team at YC, who I loved, and then I was like. I've done some deals in Latin America. It's been so painful. Sure. Uh, Scar tissue. Yeah. And so I just couldn't, everyone around me was like, you got to do this, you got to do this. And I was stubborn. And yeah, it's, I don't know. I don't know if someone can do the Siri, but it's well north of a billion. And then as if that wasn't enough, I have a very good friend who lives in Barcelona who started a company called Glovo, which is basically Rappi, but in other geographies. <laughs> and I did the oh same thing. I was Lord. like, Sasha. I love this, but this is insane. So yeah, I, I got a twofer. I was like, <laughs> it's a twofer in the same category. So this is like Spielberg is like, I got a great idea for a movie. It's a shark. He eats people, and you're like, you know what? Not for me. <laughs> then he comes back, and he's like, you know, it made more money than anything. And I'm going to make a second one. <laughs> and it's called the same thing, Jaws 2. And it makes even more money. I said, Stephen, I love you, but I can't send you And money. you love the film. Yeah. And you saw it twice. <laughs> I don't want anyone to be under any illusions. Not, investors are not the smartest. That's why you want customer money. And, but it, <laughs> 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 well played. I, I, I do like to do this only because uh, it's so entertaining. Um, but it also, I think, for, for y'all who are f uh, in, uh, founders, understand like we're, we're not perfect at this. And if you get a no from an investor, understand that we're idiots. Yep. And yep. we have this impossible job of having so many pitches at us and not enough time. And, and then we make mistakes. Which means when you're on that other side of the table and we say no, or we don't get back to you or not for us, you should put literally zero into that because it is not about getting everybody to say yes. It's about getting but one person to say yes. You guys were candid. You were insightful and funny and delightful. Give it up for Paul, Elizabeth, and Sean. What is it that makes one startup work and another startup fail? This is something I ask myself all the time as an angel investor. Well, one of the things that all the companies that win big have in common is they understand their customers. They understand their customers deeply so that they can make better products and services for those customers to delight them and keep them from churning. You know this. And nothing will get you closer to your customers than Gainsight PX. Gainsight PX is the only 
all-in-one product experience platform, and it's built specifically for SaaS products, enterprise products. So if you're an enterprise founder, listen deeply. It provides the tools so you can understand your users deeply and study their behavior at both the individual level as well as at the account level. So you know at the company level and you know the people in the company. Maybe some people are gravitating towards one feature in your product and the other group of people don't even know it exists. That's data you need to know because that will reduce churn and maybe let you land and expand inside an enterprise. Well, this information is gonna allow you to improve your product and keep your existing customers happy while gaining new ones. It's fully customizable, it's so scalable, and no coding's required. You can do it yourself. Some of their best customers include Bongo, Bizaboo, Anaplan, Kenshu. You know these great companies. And here, take a look at the Gainsight PX platform if you're watching the video. You can see us now looking at all of the active users. Hey, it's up 36% in the past seven days. And then you can go into your navigation and do really interesting things, like maybe look at what is the path at which users are going through your product or service? Whoa, look, 17 people went to the next phase, 17% dropped off, you gotta know. And you can create a new NPS survey in the editor and pop that right on the website. So here's a great call to action. You can use Gainsight PX for free right now, okay? What more do you need to know? It's free. Get in there, Gainsight, G-A-I-N-S-I-G-H-T.com slash twist. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. We are very lucky to work with extraordinary founders and um, the founders that we invest in become our best speakers. And we attribute this to the fact that in the accelerator, we torture them on their inability to explain their own companies or answer questions about them. And over time, what we find is that uh, our Founders become so insightful, candid, and well-spoken, um, and we do optimize for working with good people um, who care, and they give back to the community that we've started now. 200 investments uh, over 10 years. We're starting to see the winners in our portfolio come out for us, and this company, Fitbod, couldn't raise money. They had about $5,000 in revenue when we met them. And everybody said, it's too niche, it's not gonna work, blah, 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 all the standard stuff. And I said, you know, we have an investment that this is reminding me of called Calm.com, the meditation app, and we heard the same objections and we see some similarity between you and the other founders uh, we're in. And I think we've invested a couple of hundred thousand dollars in the company, we're the largest outside shareholders. And we have a very important thesis inside the company. You heard one of them yesterday, which is uh, never underestimate, uh, never underestimate anyone. The other thing is, when we know somebody's a winner, we want to relentlessly continue investing in them and giving them as much money as possible. So we will give preemptive investment offers to our companies when we see the revenue growing. And our um, next speaker, Alan Chen from Fitbod, I was gonna talk about growth metrics that matter, would send me the up and to the right chart, everybody in the office, Ashley, Sam, Jackie, DeMont, would say, Fitbod, did you see it? And I'd say, they sent an update and everybody runs to their desk and we see this chart and we go, whoa. And so when we get that whoa, and we see that chart, we think, let's give them more money, see if we can make it go even more, yum, yum. And uh, so I offered Alan an offer and I made him a second offer and then I made him a third offer and he said, no. Love you, J. Cal, no. J. Cal, you're the best, no. And what he's been able to do is preserve that cap table and build that revenue uh, by bootstrapping and by using metrics. He's a tremendous entrepreneur. He's got uncapped upside. Please welcome Alan. Thank you, Jason. And, and just to follow on uh, what you guys were talking about earlier, we were one of those companies where everyone said no, and we found our one investor, Jason, went through the incubator and we bootstrapped our company from having no revenue to driving revenue to having a lot of revenue. And so uh, definitely, I think an example of what they were talking about of if you really focus on your customers and your business, then you can grow and uh, investors are there to support you, which Jason has been the whole time, but uh, it's not what's gonna drive your business. So today uh, I wanna talk about the growth metrics that matter. So 
metrics and measurement for how you grow. And I'm gonna talk about this in the context of a subscription business because that's what we are, but I hope there's takeaways that you can apply to your own company so that this applies to any business. A little bit about Fitbod. Uh, we are a fitness app that tracks your workouts when you go to the gym, and then we use machine learning to combine your workout history, your gym profile, and your preferences, and we build your next workout. So the next time you go to the gym, you know exactly what you need to do. You don't have to plan ahead, and you don't have to guess at what the best thing to do is. You open the app and you know exactly what to do. We went through Launch Incubator back in uh, class five. That was uh, February, 2017. And in the last 24 months, we went from 72,000 in, in ARR over to $8 million in ARR. So in, in two years, we uh, 100X'd. And so people are always asking us how we grew and how they can grow their business. And my answer to that, to that is uh, pretty simple. Uh, I believe that growth is more a function of the product than the marketing. So if you have a product in a really good place, you have the foundation to build on that and continue to grow. And so with this talk, I'm gonna talk a little bit about uh, the metrics to look at when you look at your product and your business. Before we start, uh, let's take a look at our conversion funnel. At the top, you have the acquisition, which is the organic downloads, uh, the paid acquisition, and the word of, word of mouth referrals. From there, we convert 12% of our downloads into subscribers, and then we retain the users for the life of their membership uh, with Fitbot. We're gonna talk about uh, three fundamental metrics, and we're gonna talk about how they differ slightly from the standard metrics that are out there. The first is true DAU. We wanna get an accurate stat of the actual engaged users with our product. And we wanna exclude those who may have downloaded and tried it once or twice, but aren't actual customers. The second is our forecasted CAC. Uh, how much does it cost to acquire a customer? And we'll use this to drive our business decisions. And finally, we look at how we forecast LTV and how we can get a good number for lifetime value given just a few months of data. So DAU, uh, I think we all know this metric. It's the first metric you see in any analytics platform. Uh, rising DAU means that your active user base is growing and DAU over MAU, uh, monthly active user, is a metric for how engaged your audience is. Facebook and WhatsApp were, uh, were known to have incredible engagement when they first started out. The problem with this is while DAU is a good metric to track free social networks and messaging apps, it's not as great for a paid SaaS product. We know that from our downloads, we convert 12% of our user to subscriber. So we really shouldn't be looking at all of our downloads when looking at our DAU. So what we wanna do is we wanna take our DAU and calculate a true DAU, which represents those who are converted and retained users of Fitbod. And we wanna eliminate the acquisition portion of the funnel. To do this, we simply take DAU, we subtract out our downloads, and we get what I call the true DAU. In this chart, you can see the blue curve representing the DAU, and the red line is the daily downloads. Taking the difference, you get the yellow curve, which is the true DAU, which is going up and to the right. So this is a, a, a sign of the healthy company here. In this chart, you see the DAU also going up and to the right, but the downloads are increasing at a faster and faster rate. So we see our DAU trending downwards. This company is losing their previously engaged users and they have to continue filling the top of the funnel in order to grow their user base. I would propose that this company does not have product market fit and that this company should stop their additional acquisition until they get their true DAU trending upwards again. Note that um, I don't have a scale on the y-axis. This is just as true for a company with 10 users losing one user per day as it is for a company with 100,000 users where the true DAU is trending downwards. Also, we talk about um, DAU as our action that we're tracking. This can apply for any action that uh, you'd like to track. For example, if we were tracking our daily active exercisers, we would wanna eliminate those people who are just doing their first workout with Fitbot. Okay, uh, forecasted CAC, customer acquisition cost. There is a simple formula for CAC, 
you just take your monthly spend from last month, you divide by the number of subscribers you gained, and you get CAC. So the problem with CAC is that we are a free to download product, and we offer a free trial before we ask our users to subscribe. So our new downloads may subscribe within the first day, or they may subscribe six months after they download. So we need a way to measure this and forecast where our CAC will be given uh, our acquisition funnel. So to do this, what we can do is we can look at our historical data and you can see that over time, our conversion rates get better uh, for each given cohort. And by cohort, meaning the set of data of users who download within a given week that we're looking at. You can see in the green, uh, which is our historical data, and we can calculate what our conversion rate over time will be. And then we look at our yellow, which is our projected conversion rate based on the historical data. So we can take just the first day or the first week of data, and we can project out where the ultimate conversion rate will, conversion rate will be. And here's that plot on a chart. You can see the solid line, which represents the, the, the historicals, and the dotted line, which represent uh, the projections of where we expect conversion rate to be. Now, calculating calculus is, is simple. We just take our spend and we divide it by uh, the conversion and we get CAC. So you can see the same chart here where the solid line is the hist historicals and the dotted line represents our projection and we know where our ultimate CAC will settle at. Using this CAC, we can take our first week of data and we could drive our business decisions, such as uh, setting our budget for marketing and paid advertising. Projected lifetime value. So this is the same thing where there is a simple formula to, to look at this, and then we'll go into a formula to more accurately look at uh, lifetime value. The simple formula, you take the people who canceled their subscription in the last month, divide that by your total subscriber base, and you get churn. In this case, 10%. Then you take one over churn to get average life, and you multiply by cost to get your LTV. The problem here is that this only looks at the data from the prior month. From those who canceled last month, we don't know how many of those users were a subscriber for a month and how many were a subscriber for six or 12 months or longer. And we know that long-time subscribers are more likely to continue using the product. So here's that plot. You can see that the initial months where the drop-off is uh, pretty quick and then the curve flattens out as time goes on. So if you have only a few months worth of data and you're looking at your churn, your churn might appear quite high. And so what you can do instead is you can plot out your churn for the first few months and you apply a simple regression to project out where your retention will be in the long term. Then what you do is you take your expected retention and you multiply that by the cost for a given month and you get your expected revenue for the month. If you take a sum of that, then you get your LTV across 12 or 24 months, in this case, 24. A quick note on paid acquisition. If you have your conversion and your retention in a good place, paid acquisition should be pretty straightforward. You start with Facebook or Google or Apple search ads, and you start with the most targeted narrow group. If it works, you'll know. Uh, the ROI will be positive and then you can continue to expand and scale up from there. You can see that with us, uh, our paid advertising represents 30% of our new subscribers. Even as we scale up our paid advertising, that remains at 30%. So what that means is that as we are purchasing users through digital ads, they are telling their friends through word of mouth and we're driving additional users for every subscriber that we purchase. And so that brings us to the referral, which is an important piece of the funnel and closes the loop on growth. Referrals can be uh, word of mouth where people love your product so much, they're telling their friends through word of mouth, or they can be incentivized. A simple example is uh, Google's refer a friend and get $5. With referrals, we know that uh, we have a CAC that we calculate for paid advertising, so we know how much we can spend for uh, a user through a referral. And we also know that referrals tend to become stronger users of the product. So those are a few metrics of uh, how we look at our business um, and how they differ from the standard metric that is out there. If you are a subscription business, you can pretty much take this and apply it directly to your business. And if you're not, I hope the lesson is that you should think critically about the different metrics that are out there and how they apply to your business so you can accurately measure your growth. Uh, my email is alan at fitbot.me. Uh, feel free to email me with any questions or thoughts you have. 
uh, happy to help out in any way I can. Thanks. Wow, well done. Have a seat, Alan. Let's talk. Um, my gosh, this has gone well. Uh, you stayed super focused. Um, you've had a lot of uh, interest at an investment level. But you stayed focused on the business. Of course, this comes with some risk. Explain how you mitigate the risk and think about the risk of not raising and staying focused on the product, but hey, you know, anything can happen, things can take a turn for the worse, or competitors, et cetera. Take me through how you think about it to persevere um, and not raise money. Well, first of all, um, we'll talk. <laughs> so okay. there will be oh, something. Oh, no, no, that wasn't, soon. there was no agenda there. <laughs> Um, but I, I think the easy answer to that is that we're profitable. We're, we're cash flow positive, so uh, we could really make our own decisions. I think you talked about it uh, in the last talk where um, with these subscription businesses where we have annual plans and we collect the cash flow up front, that money goes right back into uh, our marketing engine. So it uh, makes a lot of sense there. I think if you have the metrics that we're talking about, if you have a financial model and you're able to project out what your cash flow for the business will be, you could grow that business confidently, uh, mm. knowing that uh, you know, the financials will work out as you grow. Got it. When I made the $3 million offer for 10%, how close were you to taking, in all honesty? How close? What was the internal discussion? I don't take it personally. I'm, you're one of the most successful companies, and I, in fact, respect you even more for, for the choices you've made. But just so I know, as an investor, and <laughs> what? how close did you guys come to saying, yeah, that makes sense, put an extra $3 million in the bank account or not? On a percentage basis. Very, very close. Uh, very we, close. We, we talked about it internally. We talked about it with the team. Uh, mm -hmm. We asked uh, other people who have been mentors to us. So um, it, was, it, was, it was a difficult decision. And we were very close to, to going with it. So I was, I was close. 80% maybe even. Possible. 70? Greater than 50? Greater than 50. Okay. It's greater than 50. I like to keep the audience entertained. And at that time, maybe it was four or five million dollar run, right? Something like that. And oh, the run rate? Yeah. Yeah, it was four or five, maybe six. Okay, it's about six, and now it's even more. It's eight, which is a third more. Yep. Third more, thirty million. Anybody know what that is? Let's go look here. Thirty times one point three. So carry the one three. That's thirty nine million. B. But my offer was too low last time, Mike. 39 million is too low, but close. You're putting me on the spot here. So the pot sweetener, DeMont. Well, take it easy, Captain. What are you, his lawyer? Security, get this guy the fuck out of here. Let the professionals do their work, okay? Listen, I came close last time. 10% more than that would be about 4 million. That's kind of the two is 43 million. Round that up to 45 million. 45 million is pretty juicy. Uh, but fuck it. Really no difference if it works, right, Elizabeth? 45 or 50 makes no difference. And 50 is a fucking big number. You could be proud of a number like 50. You call mom and high five around the office. So if I gave you $5 million for 10%. And another zero? <laughs> you want $500 million? Okay, we're out. <laughs> All right, everybody out. Um, so if there was like, let's just think this through here. You, are, you heard my internal math. If I made an offer, let's say, of we'll round up $5 million, lead that round. Maybe you have room for some other people that you like, uh, but we'll be the majority of it or half of it or whatever you choose or all of it I think we could do. $5 million for 50? What are you thinking? What's going through your mind right now? Aside from I'm insane, but what's going through your mind? Take me through well, the offer. I mean, maybe taking a step back, Jason, you've been our strongest supporter since we started. So oh, that's uh, nice. Thank you. It's definitely been great working with you and great having yeah. you with us. And I think it comes to know. we've <laughs> Jesus Christ. 
I've been through this before. It's like, you're a great person and you're gonna make somebody very happy someday. <laughs> but not me. And you don't wanna marry me. Why would you marry me? I'm a mess. Okay, go continue. No, we, we've continued to think about uh, taking the additional investments. So it's something that is, is still on top of our minds. And like you said, uh, the, the math definitely makes it really, really interesting. And definitely uh, in, the in the coming days and weeks, there's going to be something interesting that will come up. Okay. Well, sounds like I lost that deal. I guess I'll just be going pro rata. Maybe we get a little extra super pro rata. That's pretty entertaining, I think. I'm dead serious, five million for 50? Going once? <laughs> so you guys, we can do this both ways. Going twice. I'll talk with Jesse and we'll, we'll, we'll oh, I pulled the co-founder, now I can. I got no response to that. I got no response to that. Uh, listen, it's a great pleasure. I really appreciate you um, sharing all the numbers and the metrics and just, you know, in general, it's just good to be in business with you, whether we can put more money in or not. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Thank you. give it up for Alan. Thanks a lot.